Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Andy Ricketts, Acting Editor. And I'm Russell Hargrave, Senior News Reporter at Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. Each week we sit down for a quick-fire conversation about the interesting or unusual goings-on in the charity world. And this week we're talking to Emily Morrison, Head of the Institute for Community Studies, about its latest research into volunteering. But first, Andy, we've had three great new leaders in just three podcasts. It's extraordinary. We've had Liz Truss, who took over as Prime Minister Minister from Boris Johnson. We've mm-hmm. had King Charles III following the sad death of Elizabeth II. Yeah. And now we know that we're going to have a new charities minister, no less. Oh, I know. Um, it was announced this morning that Nigel Huddleston is out as charities minister at the Department for Digital, Culture, Media and Sport. He's off to become a government whip where he'll be in charge of discipline and making people do what they're told. Um, and we are waiting to see who's going to come and fill his seat and who's going to do the job next um it begs the obvious question i mean you wrote a story very quickly this morning i know andy about this change and led on the fact that nigel huddleston had only been in the role for a year Mm. i mean what sort of mark did he make in that time well i mean one thing we should probably caveat before we even get into this discussion is that we are recording on wednesday morning Mm -hmm. obviously huddleston has just it's just emerged last night that he's out and probably by the time you listen to this podcast we'll know who the new charities minister is uh we won't probably won't get into any speculation on that at the moment because we'll probably just end up embarrassing ourselves i've seen too many false dawns over the years of people being anointed as charities minister only for uh people having to do a quick u-turn just hours later so did nigel huddleston make his mark well he didn't really have much opportunity Mm. as you said he was in the job for less than a year it was october last year that he was appointed but also he's had his plate full of other things. As we have written about on Third Sector, Huddleston had not only responsibility for the civil society brief, he also had tourism, he had heritage, but probably more crucially, he had sport slash the Commonwealth Games. And the sports brief in itself is pretty big. And he's had a lot of his time, I think, taken up with having to go to big sporting events, which sounds dreadful (laughs) (laughs) Um, but the consequence is that that has just meant that his time available for doing things related to the charity sector has been very limited I mean I can think of virtually no policy announcements that have been made in the last year relating to government and the voluntary sector I mean, it's not a good sign either, is it, that between the two of us, we can't think really of a single thing that you'd sort of attached mm. his name in 12 months. Um, I can see why you might choose to spend a bit of time sort of watching the cricket and chatting about the Commonwealth Games um, rather than getting the minutiae of, say, you know, charity regulation and this sort of thing. Mm. But it does matter. Um, and of course, you know, we write every day about the stuff that matters. So it, it seems peculiar that a minister would, would just leave no mark at all. I always think as well... He came after that kind of COVID-19 period mm. when Diana Barron, I think, his predecessor, um, did do a fairly good job and was well received because there was that obvious focus on a thing that needed ministerial attention. We needed somebody in the sector to to fight the corner, to get the money released, to get it spent in a way that was going to get charity sort of out the other end of that crisis. Um, and then sort of Huddleston came in and has been there for a year when things have been a lot quieter and a lot calmer. And so it's been less obvious what exactly on a sort of a crisis level he would do. And we haven't seen that kind of infrastructure stuff really changing under him. No, and actually, the, you know, the, the position in recent years under this Conservative government has kind of yo-yoed between 
Diana Barron, as you alluded to there, having it as her sole responsibility, mm. even though she was a minister in the Lords, uh, to Tracy Crouch having it on top of her sport responsibilities. Um, so it kind of has bounced between those two different positions. And I think a lot of people in the sector just think that it's illustrative of the government's commitment to the voluntary sector or potentially the, the lack thereof yeah. uh, because, you know, invariably it seems to be one of the last positions that's filled whenever there's a government reshuffle. We may find that's the case again. Indeed, we might. Um, and you also, I mean, there are voices in the sector that will say, honestly, if you want to have a really good relationship with a minister and you work as a housing charity, then you're going to be looking at, and the housing minister's changed however many times mm-hmm. in the last 10 years mm-hmm. as well, but you're going to be looking at those kind of sector specific positions how much use is a a civil society minister going to be to you that's not quite such an easy question to answer so maybe the pressure isn't coming from charities as well there isn't a kind of a demand side pressure as it were to get a sort of a a civil society voice in there one thing we do know about Nigel Huddleston I was looking back through the records I mean I only wrote one story about him in my time at third sector I've been here six months so again that does tell you a little (laughs) bit about his public profile um we did learn that he likes to do a bit of twitter snooping oh And let's be honest, who doesn't do this, right? If you've got a meeting with someone, you have a quick (laughs) scan of their LinkedIn, a quick scan of their Twitter to see what they're like. And he said he did this before he met with charity leaders. And he often found that uh, on Twitter, they might hold extraordinarily strong, often, I would imagine, not conservative political views. They weren't afraid to voice. And then, of course, when they went in to meet the minister, he was very pleased that they were extremely well behaved and didn't voice their kind of desire for the, I presume, kind of revolution and breakdown of, of normal society. Um, and instead just politely chatted to him about, you know, what will happen next with dormant assets or something <laughs> like that. Um, so, you know, we, we found out a little bit of colour, but he's no, he's gone. And now we just wait patiently. Andy, it's very difficult on a news desk to be patient, but we wait Oof. patiently to find out who uh, who comes next. And I'll be interested, actually, to see how he gets on as a whip. Because mm. he's he's always has this very clean cut, finely groomed image. Amiable. And, Exactly. Yeah. You feel like if he's going to have to be applying the thumbscrews, I'm I'm not sure how he's going to do that unless he is some kind of a baby-faced assassin that's going to go around getting people to vote the way the government wants. Maybe it's one of those cunning ruses. He's the one that you get on a false sense of security when he's the one who bangs <laughs> yes. on your parliamentary door and it turns out that he's got all your darkest secrets in his back pocket and he's not afraid to use it. I mean, let's be honest, we're wildly speculating, <laughs> but that's already more interesting than anything that happened in the last year with the Civil Society Brief. So, uh, so let's see where we go from there. Shall we get on with the main interview? Absolutely fab. Last week, the Institute for Community Studies published its latest research into volunteering trends among young people in the UK. The research looks in particular at what it calls the volunteer journey, the moments in a young person's life when they are most likely to become involved in volunteering and the outside factors that most influence someone's decision to volunteer. And we're joined on the podcast this week by Emily Morrison, head of the ICS. Emily, thank you for joining us. It's great to have you with us. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. You are extremely welcome. I mean, the obvious place to start, Emily. Um, what's the, the value of volunteering? What did your research find in terms of how it helped both individuals and the organisations and charities where they give their time? Well, it's a well-established um, known fact in the evidence that there's normally what's described as a double benefit from volunteering. Um, 
part of the benefit is to society. So a benefit in terms of people giving up their time, a benefit in terms of people taking action on causes that they care about, you know, making up a very thriving fabric of, of you know, a social and, and voluntary sector. And the second part of the double benefit is the benefit to volunteers themselves, which is very well documented. So a benefit to uh, overcoming isolation, for example, personal development, a sense of, um, you know, achieving personal value in terms of um, doing things for others. Um, what we found in our research was actually what we're defining as a triple benefit, which is emerging in terms of how young people really see the value of volunteering. Um, and the third area of the benefit is a really, really firm one towards place. So, and that's both about young people's sense of belonging to place. So taking part in volunteering, really building young people's connection to their community, um, their sense of their level of agency within their local community, whether or not that community is you know, a, an area that they feel they might live in for the rest of their lives or whether it's somewhere that they feel they're, they're both passing through. Um, and at the Young Foundations Institute for Community Studies, what we tend to do is um, we've looked at, for example, students as volunteers during their um, student years and how that can really connect them closer to the communities that they're living in when they're in halls. We've also looked at um, how, for example, young people who are um, not in education, employment or training, how they can become closer connected to communities um, even though perhaps other um, opportunities around employability or in terms of what we might consider good youth pathways, when they appear to have closed off, volunteering provides that connective tissue to place. Um, and that's really what we found in this report. So we're defining that as the triple benefit or triple value of volunteering. And um, one of the things that came out in the report was a what the report calls a, a postcode lottery for volunteering opportunities um, um, particularly among young people. what Could you talk a little bit about that and what's driving that trend? Well, it's a well-established um, fact that the cuts of up to 40% in terms of local council and local authority budgets between 2010 and 2020 in particular have really reduced you know, the running budgets and indeed, in some cases, the ability to operate of a lot of youth services, um, a lot of smaller local charities, particular in parts of the country that are you know, particularly rural areas, coastal areas, but it, places that rank highly on the indices of multiple deprivation as being, you know, most deprived. And what that has resulted in is really a lack of provision of volunteering opportunities. You could argue there's even greater need for people to volunteer in those communities because it has um, reduced the ability to operate of parts of the voluntary and social sector because those cuts mean they just don't have the money to operate. But actually what we found was the cuts to local authority budgets just mean that the accessibility and availability of volunteering opportunities is, is just not there in certain parts of the country. Um, it's not even that it's not visible. It, it's just that it is very, very fragmented. Um, there isn't anyone to coordinate it. There's not somebody to necessarily support young people on their first volunteering journey. And as a result, that is creating a sense where in certain areas, particularly large kind of urban areas, there's a much greater opportunity to volunteer. There's many larger charities that are still operating. Um, there's many, um, you know, schemes and projects that people might have access to. In other parts of the country, there, there's a very, very limited availability. And that's what we call a sort of patchwork, um, you know, or, or a lottery, basically, in terms of where people can, can and can't volunteer. 
You mentioned um, right at the top there the cuts to a sort of local authority budgets and the impact and sort of thing that third sector has written about a lot in the last decade. Um, just to go a bit further into that, I mean, how how deep is that impact? Can can civil society rebuild um, with or without a bit more cash maybe in the future? Um, and, and where do volunteers fit into that process? I think civil society definitely can rebuild. But I think what this report and the work of others, um, you know, particularly Volunteering Matters and, and some of the wider civil society and charitable organisations who've done a lot of research in this space, I think what it shows is that we need to, first and foremost, have a wider definition and a more acknowledgement of different ways in which, you know, the voluntary sector can operate and different definitions of what volunteering means to young people. Um, What we found in our report was people had a much more informal or what we're calling a hybrid sense of what volunteering could be. So volunteering could be you know, forms of um, befriending, it could be forms of mutual aid, or participation in mutual aid networks, it could be from a young person's perspective, um, offering mental health support to another peer online, basically, those would not normally be seen within what we would traditionally characterise as volunteering or voluntary action necessarily. And, you know, there are challenges with this, you know, how do we form Uh, regulatory and, you know, support structures around some of these more fluid forms of volunteering. But I think the positive side is that, you know, there is still a thriving fabric there. It's just we need to probably find a new language and a new terminology of how we look at it. Um, And the final thing I'd like to say on that is I think we also found in our report a really, really strong questioning by young people about the how far some of these opportunities that they were being offered should be the responsibility of a volunteer and how far actually they were within what should be provided by the state, for example. So then you get into that kind of thorny area between, you know, responsibility, how far does the welfare state extend? Certainly for the majority of young people that we spoke to across all of our different methods, they felt that actually they would like to see a more thriving welfare state and then for volunteering to be more catalytic in local places to to create more innovative, radical forms of of social change. Now, that's quite a different way of looking at volunteering to what we've become used to in the last 10 years, where volunteering has been very much picking up the mantle of where cuts to local government have reduced certain services. And to what extent does the amount of volunteering people do when they're young influence how much volunteering they might do later in life? What does the evidence tell us? Um, So the evidence is is that there isn't a direct correlation at all. Um, So really what we were looking at was this notion of a journey through volunteering. Um, And as we found in the report, that's both an external journey through different sources of provision, different age ranges and milestones. Um, So we know that the majority of young people in our report corroborates this um, they start their volunteering journey. They have their first experience at school. Um, our report looked at 11-year-olds up to 30-year-olds. Um, and in our you know, workshops with 11 to 15-year-olds, and we worked with over 350 of them, um, they were very much you know, impassioned and, and passionate about their first volunteering experiences. Um, but what we also see is that there is a very profound drop-off um, particularly between the ages of 18 to 24 years. Um, and that is, I think, purely because pathways for young people become fragmented. Some go to university and some remain engaged in volunteering. 
now that there is quite a burden on students, you know, they have certain employability goals, you know, hybrid landscape of how education is now delivered at tertiary level that's been exacerbated by being online during the pandemic. You know, this is reducing young people's capacity to volunteer. And then, of course, post 24 years, quite a lot of young people then may have caring responsibilities, you know, they may be in full-time work. There is a, a well-known statistic of the forgotten 50%, which is the 50% of young people in work who don't volunteer at all, to our knowledge. So it's definitely not a sustained or consistent pathway. Um, but there are certain milestones where I feel the support could be changed or increased in order to try to keep young people's momentum around volunteering in a way that because provision is largely currently planned around certain age groups, it's not working quite in that way. Um, and of course, um, it also depends on the quality of the experience a young person has at different points in their volunteering journey. Quite a lot of what we heard was certain experiences of volunteering have really put people off continuing on their volunteering journey. And I think um, for people who start out on a very impassioned journey with volunteering, you know, it, we found very much that there's a very strong deep connection to service within this generation between the ages of 11 and particularly 24. Um, and so if they feel that that first foray into service has not been met, you know, with the kind of um, sense of value or meaning that they are attributing to it, then it can actually dissuade people. And that's not necessarily to do with provision or pathways. That's just to do with um, quality of lived experience of that volunteering opportunity. And the report concludes by recommending or making a series of recommendations really about ways in which everyone involved with volunteering can better understand how those pathways operate, what the experiences of young people are as they sort of negotiate their way into volunteering for the first time. Um, and also the language that we use to describe volunteering. Is that actually the language that people who are volunteering themselves would ever use? Um, how What sort of progress has um, the Institute made working with government and others on trying to get those recommendations made into something a bit more solid? So at the Young Foundation, we're very much about focusing on for a fairer future. So we're addressing this in, in two ways. One is we are directly engaging with the Department for Digital Culture, Media and Sport, who have governance over the volunteering brief at the moment and over the, the youth policy um, brief. And we are working with them to think about, um, because they they commissioned the report, how can the structures around how vol young people volunteer and the support mechanisms around how young people volunteer be better tailored to their needs. So as well as a triple benefit in our report, we also found there's a triple burden, which is that for a lot of young people, you know, volunteering, you know, comes alongside struggles they're having with mental health. And that is our, you know, the, the double burden, you know, which is normally around having the time to volunteer. Um, and also then, you know, having the, you know, logistical accessibility to volunteer, can you travel to a volunteering opportunity, we've added a triple burden, which was because overwhelmingly, young people told us that they needed support with their mental health, and they needed pastoral support, mentorship, you know, these kind of particularly group volunteering models where they could feel like um, they could build the confidence and the agency to to volunteer. So that's quite a lot of new thinking. It obviously changes kind of what has in some ways been a more fleeting or transactional relationship between the volunteer and the provider in the past. Um, and you know, by transactional, I don't mean that negatively. I just mean it wasn't seen as being this kind of transformative necessarily experience. And so working with DCMS to think about, you know, if you're going to provide a new blueprint for volunteering, what else needs to be 
within that. We're also looking with, and we held a series of stakeholder workshops with members of the volunteering sector um, who are providing opportunities about, there's been a real focus on social action models for quite a long time, but actually what we found was they're very popular with young people, but it's hard to build sustained engagement because the idea is you complete a social action project, then you're done. And a lot of young people don't perhaps see the connection between that kind of model and their everyday lives. So we're working actively with people providing opportunities to feed in our findings and recommendations from the Institute's report and to say, you know, how might this change how you think about what you're offering um, in the next round of volunteering, just so that um, we can really encourage a greater volunteering base to develop. One thing our listeners will be wondering is whether the report or your research shows anything that talks about what charities get right at the moment when attracting and retaining volunteers and and what they might be able to do better. So we did talk to a lot of stakeholders about their experience of what was and wasn't working. The report doesn't do an exhaustive evaluation of this, so I wouldn't want to overclaim on this because we haven't evaluated lots of models but things that the the stakeholders directly told us were working were um, group models um, and for younger age groups 11 to 15 for example or younger family driven volunteering models where the whole family can participate you know on a weekend activity or even on a recurrent activity Um, group models were very popular with the older teenage age group. I think it's about that confidence building. It's about it being a social activity that builds social capital as well as being a activity that's about service, for example. Um, And the social action model is very effective, particularly for those with more constraints on their time. But what people found wasn't working and where there's been a real drop off has been that sustained every day or every week, regular volunteering. So volunteering in a charity shop, volunteering in a food bank, volunteering you know, on regular shifts, that's been really, really hard to attract young volunteers um, to do. You know, There was a lot of support from young people during the pandemic as they've gone back into education. The job market is really tough. You know, They're perhaps trying to restart their studies. That has really dropped off. And so finding kind of ways to incentivize young people into volunteering you know people are having to think very creatively with what we were hearing um they're having to think outside the box and we've also seen a lot of models where you know individual companies are thinking about group volunteering models social action models and how those fit in as a pathway into employment for example so kind of making almost that implicit connection that's always been there if you have volunteering on your cv potentially going to help you in terms of when you're in the job market against other candidates, people actually trying to formalise that relationship between charities and private sector to make them a more of a volunteering pathway from service into work. That's very exciting, but there's only a few small pilot models that we were hearing about. And it would be really interesting to evaluate the efficacy of those. Emily Morrison, thank you so much for your time and for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you. Each week, we're bringing you a good news bulletin, positive or quirky news stories that we've spotted in the sector. And it's a bit of a follow-up day today. We're going to look back at a couple of things that we've done in the past under our good news banner to see how things went. So first of all, very recently, last week, Andy, we talked about this gentleman who was going to go and visit all the pubs in Brighton to raise a bit of money for the Dogs Trust. How did he get on? Well, Nathan Crimp, who was fundraising for the Dogs Trust... 
he managed to visit. He was aiming to visit 75 pubs. Yeah. In the space of well, it seemed a slightly indeterminate number of hours. We thought <laughs> that 12, often happens when you go maybe twenty four. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Sussex Live brings us the news that Nathan Crimp visited sixty seven pubs in seventeen hours. That's a that is a lot of pubs. It is a lot of pubs. Apparently, he covered eighteen miles during that period, which is no mean feat in itself. It's just taking out the element of going to the pub and yeah. having a drink. He had walked a very long way. Nathan had planned to visit 75 pubs, but sadly he found that some were closed or hosting private functions, which I think is a bit of a shame when you're trying to break a world record. I mean, it suggests as well, like, where was the logistics guy? Yeah. You needed somebody who was there mm-hmm. doing the phoning ahead, doing the, or just, you know, checking the website to see if they'd been booked up. But anyway, so it sounds like there's only, I mean, he still managed to, to, to get to what would that be, sort of 60 odd pubs? He visited 67. Oh, sorry, yes. Indeed, he did. he did. And that broke the previous world record of 56 pubs held by Gareth Murphy. And he visited 56 pubs in 24 hours. Uh, Nathan managed to pass that mark of 56 in, in just more than 10 hours. So he was flying. And our friends at Sussex Live tell us that uh, sensibly he only had a beer in less than half of the pubs. Now, (laughs) I'm a writer, not a mathematician, Andy, but that still sounds like that's a a beer in less than half of 67 pubs. Yeah. I mean, that still... Stop me if I'm going wrong. Go on. about... 33 <laughs> drinks. But they do say less than half of them. So well, that could half be of, anything half between 33 and zero. <laughs> that's very true. Did you not? You didn't uh, follow up directly to, uh, to clarify this. I haven't much. questioned them about this. Uh, but they did report that he drank lager, beer and liqueur shots, collecting a receipt from each pub as evidence. That's just a big night out for Andy Ricketts, isn't it? <laughs> no, it certainly wouldn't be. Um, listen, all of this was done in a good cause. How much did he raise? He raised £630 for the Dogs Trust. His GoFundMe page is still open if anybody wants to donate. And at this point, we probably should point out that immediately after we started, uh, we ended talking about Nathan last time, our very fine producer, Aidan, who is becoming clear, is uh, clearly more witty than you and me put together. And the bar is set Pretty high on that. <laughs> Pointed out that this would be a Guinness World Record. I mean, that one was staring us in the face and we still missed it, but um, <laughs> Aiden doesn't miss those kinds of open goals. <laughs> exactly. Uh, what story have you got to bring us up to date on, Russell? Well, two or three weeks ago, Emily, Burt and I um, were in this very studio talking about a rush for blood donations mm. and a couple of charities um, representing people from ethnic minority backgrounds um, had got together to say, let's see if we can appoint far more people to give blood. And especially we know that people from Asian backgrounds and black backgrounds are less likely to do so. And there is a demand for blood donations from those communities to help people in hospital. So an incredibly good cause. And what we learned uh, this week is that they succeeded in breaking the record for the largest blood drive in history. Last month, working under the hashtag Global Blood Heroes, the campaign saw 37,018 blood donations in a single day, which beat the previous record of 34,723, and that was set just in 2020. Um, so the charities involved, the campaigners estimated that with three lives saved for each donation, that's 110,000 people who could be saved through the campaign's efforts. 
What is the name of the charity, Russell? Uh, this was Who is Hussein, a US-based social justice charity. Um, they were the ones who organised and did all of the PR around this and were very proud to announce their success this week. So many congratulations to them. And I know we said it when I was talking to Emily at the time, campaigns raise money or they raise awareness or they uh, help charities get off the ground. But this is a case where you can actually see a very material difference being made. Blood donors will often uh, end up with a habit of giving blood over very long periods. Tens of thousands of people who didn't used to give blood are now doing it. And we've got numbers for potentially lives saved off the back of it. So absolutely terrific stuff. Really good news and well done to them. There were 27 countries involved, apparently, in this, which I imagine is a bit of a logistical challenge. Russell, what would you say about that? Um, I was thinking earlier when we were talking about this, Andy, that it would involve them trying to spin a lot of platelets. And on that, we'd like to say thank you very much and goodbye. There is one more joke that we could put in. <laughs> oh, God, is that? Okay. Uh, also, they, we are told that 25% of the donations made in the UK came from those who were giving blood for the first time. So you could say that they were on the end of hard sell. You could say that, Andy. But that's not. <laughs> it's that's a good not idea. we'll be back with another episode soon so make sure you subscribe to this the third sector podcast on your favorite podcast app to be the first to know about it until then i'm russell hargrave and i'm andy ricketts thank you to our guest emily morrison and to our producer and witticist aiden lyons at rethink audio we will see you next week